How many of you this morning are ready to hear the Word of God? Come on. Well, hey, I've got the privilege of, uh, of kicking off our... Uh, typically during the summers, we do something a little differently. Um, we actually will take a book of the Bible and, uh, and just kind of go through the book instead of, uh, instead of doing topical series. Um, some, of our, some of our pastoral staff won't necessarily go what we call exegetical preaching. Does anybody know what that means? It's okay. It's, a, it's kind of a big churchy word. Um, exegetical means line by line. So it'd be like taking scripture and, and just preaching directly from scripture. Some of our pastoral staff won't do that, but I'm going to do that for the next couple of weeks. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us through probably the first and second chapters of Ephesians, and uh, I'm excited to get into it this morning. So if you're, if you're taking notes this morning, I'd like you to write down, please, chosen to choose. Chosen to choose. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this... Uh, I'm going to probably take this a little differently this morning because we're going into a book series. I'm going to, I'm going to start by giving you context. Um, a lot of times we can, in a, in a simple reading of scripture, if we don't know who the text is written to, if we don't know the time period in which it was written, if we don't really understand the reasons why these letters were written, we can come to some untrue conclusions about what the Bible actually means. How many of you realize that the Bible is infallible. How many of you realize your interpretation of it is not? Right? See, the Bible means something, but sometimes we don't know what it means. So we're going we're to start off by just talking about the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was, uh, was, the, uh, was the capital city of the chief province in the Roman Empire in Asia at the time that Paul wrote it. He wrote it somewhere between uh, AD 60 and AD 65. Um, at the time, Ephesus was the, was, the, uh, was the site of the main temple of Diana or Artemis, the worship of, of that particular goddess in Asia, which made it one of the most important cities in Asia. Because it was such a, uh, a, a cultural and religious center, it also became, uh, it, it became a huge tourist and commerce and banking city. It's probably one of the reasons why Paul spent so much time in Ephesus is because it was so important. You know, there are certain cities, we kind of realize this in America, like we think about New York, we think about it differently than like Kansas City. You think about New York City and you're like, oh, that's a really important city. You think about Kansas City and you're like, ah, it's, it's in Kansas, Missouri, I don't know, you know. Like, there's a lot of people that live there, but there's, there, there's something different about certain cities, right? That's what Ephesus was. Paul actually spent, he went, he went to Ephesus two different times. The first time it was a fairly short visit, and the second time he stayed for three years. If you can imagine, Paul actually, Paul spent every single day for several hours, he would teach in a, in a, in a, a building called the Hall of Tyrannus. And anybody that wanted to show up could learn directly from the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine sitting in one of those sessions for multiple hours, just hearing Paul himself exegete scripture? There's actually a reason, there's a reason why in the book of Revelation, when the, when the, the, the church of Ephesus is named, that the main commendation that Jesus, as he's, as he's giving a prophetic word to John, the main commendation for Ephesus is that they are really, really well versed in scripture. They know what they know, and they know what looks. They know they know what false doctrine and false theology looks like. Why? Because the apostle Paul literally spent three years personally teaching people. But again, probably the reason he did that 
is because he knew that so many people were going to come and go from that place that whatever he planted there was going to go to a whole lot of different places. Now the overarching message, I want you to understand that the vast majority of the letters of Paul, every one of them have an overall theme. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we can actually break things up into just our daily devotional, and we don't connect the dots that every book has a, has a big meaning. So there's, there's scriptures that have, a, that have an inherent meaning. They've got a small meaning for themselves, but in the larger context of the book, the book itself has a full meaning. Now the meaning, the full message of the book of Ephesus is talking about the identity of the church and thereby the identity of the believer. How many of you know that you have an identity that might be different than your actual identity? You may think that you are something that you are actually not. See, if I was to ask you the question this morning, who are you? Many of you, would, you'd think about it for a few minutes, and then you'd give me a laundry list of your hobbies. Or you'd tell me that you're a nice guy. Or you'd tell me that you have a great sense of humor. Or you'd tell me, oh, well, shoot, um, I'm a, a plumber, uh, uh, I'm a Republican, uh, and I, uh, I like the Seahawks. Why is that? Why do you think that, why do you think it is that we tend to boil our identity down to what we do or what we don't do? It's because in the absence of a real understanding of what our identity is, we are forced to make one up. And by and large, we tend to identify with what we do, not who we are. See, Ephesians, a lot of times when, when Paul was writing a letter to churches, he was actually writing in response to real problems. Like, Paul didn't, for the most part, just sit down and say, you know who I should write a letter to? Philemon. That guy really needs to hear from me. No, he wrote a letter to Philemon because Philemon's slave came to him and talked about how badly he was being treated. So he wrote a letter to Philemon in response. He didn't just one morning sit down and say, you know who could really hear, who really benefit from hearing from me is the Corinthians. No, he, he wrote to the Corinthians because he heard about a ton of heresy that was happening there. Interestingly enough, the book of Ephesians is not like that. Paul actually did sort of just sit down, and whereas like the book of Galatians, for example, has a very familial feel, it's very personal. The book of Ephesians is a lot more formal. It's essentially just a book of doctrine. And he wrote it because he wanted them to remember all the things that he had already taught them. He wasn't writing because there was an issue within the church. He was writing to ward off future problems by giving an in-depth look at what it is to be a son or daughter of God. Let me tell you something. When you know what you're worth, you're less likely to sell yourself short for experiences and behaviors that are beneath it. We put it to you this way. How many of you have ever sold a car and somebody lowballed you? What that means, if, you have, if, if you're you know, Gen Z in the house and you don't know what that means yet, a lowball offer is when somebody offers you a certain amount of money to purchase something that is far below the actual worth of that whatever it is you're, they're trying to buy. You see, and even think about it this way. When we, th we think about the idea of getting a good deal, what is a good deal? 
A good deal is when we pay significantly less to acquire something than it's actually worth. Because the moment we have something, we think to ourselves, I already have equity, right? We don't think of a good deal as buying a car at 50% more than it's actually worth. That's not a good deal. That's the definition of a bad deal. Here's the thing. Can I say something to you this morning? A lot of us in this, in this place are giving the devil a really good deal a lot because we don't know what we're worth and so we sell ourselves short. See, this is what Paul is addressing here in the first chapter of Ephesians. He's trying to get the church to be reminded of what you have in Christ. What you have in Christ. So let's go to this text. We're actually going to start in verse 3. The first couple of verses are uh, just Paul kind of reintroducing himself to the church. So we're going to start in verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. I want you to, this phrase, I want you to think this. Think about this phrase, in Him, in Him, in Him, in Him. Not in you, not in what you can do, not in what you've got, in Him. In Him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the One who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of His will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to His glory. In Him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit, listen to this, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Man, that's a heck of a start, am I right? I mean, imagine you're you're, you're sitting in the church of Ephesus, right? And the the elder, whoever is preaching that particular morning, comes up and says, we got this letter from the apostle Paul, and we're going to read it. And that's that's what you hear coming out of the gate, right? Here's the thing. There's a couple of words in there that we get tripped up on. Predestined. It's kind of a tough one sometimes in the evangelical church. We tend to have two camps of people. We have, we have a camp that tends to mumble that word. Because we don't, we don't want to deal with the possible implications of what predestined means. And then there's a camp that loudly says, predestined! Because they really want to hammer it home that God chose you before the foundation of the world. And that's the key point of their whole theological structure. But can I tell you what the point of this passage is? It's not predestined. It's in Him. It's not predestined. It's in Him. What Paul was doing right out of the gate was he was saying, listen, every good thing that you have, it's not in you. It's in Him. See, God gave us all these things. Let me put it this way. We can get 
You know, Paul, Paul talks all throughout this book, and, I, and I'm so excited to get into it, guys. We're going to hit like the fivefold, like the fivefold leadership. We're going we're to talk about all sorts of things. He talks about spiritual government. He talks about family. He talks about how you should treat one another. But the thing is, is that at the core of this is Christ. It's Jesus. It's in him. All of the other things that we see in this book are rooted in the term in him. Let me ask you a different question. If tomorrow all of your prayer requests were granted, like think about the things that you take time every day to ask God for. If tomorrow every single prayer request was fulfilled, would you seek him the next day as fervently as you sought him today? See, this is what Paul is trying to bring across to the church in the very forefront of this message. Is he's saying, listen, all of this other stuff is great and we're going to talk about it. But until you get it through your head that it's in Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus, you're not going to have the right intent. Everything that you have that's worth boasting about is in him. Here's the big idea. Your worth and identity are not in what you can do or have done, but rather what has been done on your behalf. I'm going to say it one more time. Your worth and identity are not in what you can do or have done, but rather what has been done on your behalf. The most important thing about you is not that you're a plumber. The most important thing about you is not that you're a nurse. The most important thing about you, believe it or not, is not that you're a Seahawks fan. The most important thing about you is that Jesus died for you. Because right in, right in that message, in that gospel message, it tells you what you are worth. See, this is where sometimes the kingdom of God and the American dream have a hard time meshing. Because what we do is we, we're very, we very easily fall into the, the, the typical trap that our work ethic is what defines us. Our bank account is what defines us. Whether we've made it or not is what defines us. But friend, I got to tell you that that does not define the believer. What defines the believer is what Jesus already did for you. And what Ephesians chapter 1 tells us is that everything that we have that's worth boasting about is given to us in Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. Listen to this. This is again. This is this is Paul. This is in Second Corinthians. Actually, it's in uh, it's in chapter eleven, verse thirty. It says, "If boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses." I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I you know, I remember we were we were in our elders meeting one time, and I can't remember if it was my dad or or, or, or Pastor Brian, but they said, "Man, we must have gotten old or something," because it seems like we open up each one of these meetings talking about our ailments. You know, like, "Oh, my knee hurt this week" or something. But the thing is, is that we don't often boast about our weaknesses. We, we, when, when people ask us who we are, what do we say? We say the things we're good at. Like, I want you to know the good side of me. I want you to understand what I do well. I want you to know why I'm worth your time. By telling you all the good things about me. And then, of course, eventually, you know, you got enough relationship with somebody to find out all the bad things about you. But Paul, on the other hand... 
It's, it's really interesting, this study in 2 Corinthians. Paul, Paul is actually writing, uh, and he's, he's mocking these men that he calls super apostles. They're basically a group of guys that have said, we have greater revelation than Paul. Don't listen to that guy. And so Paul actually, he, he kind of sarcastically boasts about all the things that have happened to him. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, he doesn't say you know how many miracles I've worked? You know, how many, how, you know how many people have gotten saved at my conferences? No, what he says is, he's like, okay, I'll boast. I've been shipwrecked three times. I spent a day and night out on the water. Can you imagine that? Like, you get shipwrecked, nobody comes to rescue you, and you're just like hanging out, like on a piece of your broken ship. Just like, okay. I mean, imagine the conversations in your mind that you're having with Jesus, right? Like, I don't know that this is what you promised me. Like, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that this is where you actually have me, right? And then he says, he's like, I've been beaten so many times. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here for a second. He's, he's saying, I've been beaten so many times, I can't even remember how many times I've been beaten. I mean, the guy's punch drunk from how many times that he's like been stoned to death. And then he's, he gets stoned, and then they think he's dead, and then he gets back up. And that's the life of the Apostle Paul. Anybody want to be that guy? But even in this boast, he's boasting about the things, the negative things about him. But then he goes on to say, but if I'm going to boast about anything, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses because it's in Christ's strength that my weakness that Christ's strength is perfected. I'm going to tell you the things that I can't do so that I can remind you of the things that God can do. So instead of asking, who are you? We're going to talk about who are we in Christ. Number one, chosen. Chosen. This is John 15, 16. We're going to get into a lot of scripture today, by the way, if you didn't realize that. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. I want to key on that, that, that very first line right there. You did not choose me, but I chose you. You didn't choose me, I choose you. See, a lot of us, a lot of us have grown up in traditions that put like the impetus for our salvation completely on our shoulders. You know, the older I get, the more convinced I am of God's ability to hold things. When I was young, er, er, younger, I always have to be careful about that because when I say young, all the uh, like all the older folks in the room are like, "Wait till you hit 60. Like, okay, I get it, man. But <laughs> but as I as I get older, the more the, the the closer I get, the closer I get to Jesus. Let me say it that way. The closer I get, the more I'm convinced that God is able to hold me, man. When I was younger, it felt like every time that I sinned or did something that I shouldn't do, I was afraid for my eternal soul. Friend, can I tell you what God chooses, He keeps. He cannot, somebody in the room has to know, God cannot lose you. He can't lose you. If He found you, He can't lose you. You know, a lot of us even, we, we, we say things like, oh, I found Jesus. So friend, you didn't find Jesus. Jesus found you. You know, if you're wandering through a dark wood in the night, and then somebody comes with a flashlight, you don't say, oh, I found you. You didn't find anything. You were found. You were found. And if you are found, he will keep you. 
The, the book of Romans tells us that nothing can take us out of his hands. I, I want somebody in the room this morning that is struggling with the idea of whether you are saved or not to get a hold of the fact that you don't save you. Jesus does. You are chosen in him. Here's what I want you to remember. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about predestination this morning, not from a Reformed perspective. Sometimes the Reformed community can, can really go like a whole different way with it. Where, Anyway, we're going to take a middle approach. Can we take a middle approach this morning? The middle approach is this. You were chosen because God know, knew that you would choose. How many of you in this room prepared to have children? What I mean by that, I don't necessarily mean that you, you, know, you, you mapped out their whole lives before they were born, but of course some of you did that, so there's that. <laughs> and then you get disappointed when they don't follow the plan that you have for their life. Imagine how God feels. Anyway, so, <laughs> so what, this, what this text says is that we were, before the foundation of the world, he weaved an inheritance for us. My wife and I, I, I don't know why, but I, I had this, this thing where I didn't want to have kids until I owned a house. I don't know why that was in my mind. I, I don't feel like there was some sort of trauma in my childhood that, you know, that made me think that you're not a real family unless you own a house. But there was something in my mind that said, if you're going to have kids, you need to have a house. And so our preparation to have children was buying a home. And the moment we bought a house, I was like, okay, we can have kids now. We're good. Most of you know what I'm talking about when I say prepared. The moment you thought about having kids or, or, you, did, or you and your, your spouse decided, okay, now's the time. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna start trying, right? What did you do? Well, you, you, know, you turned that third bedroom that's basically a storage room into the child's room, right? You painted the walls. You put together, you know, you put together a, what do they call those things? A crib. Sorry, I haven't had little kids in a while. <laughs> it's been a hot minute. <laughs> you put together the crib, probably poorly if you were like me. Um, you, you did certain things in order to make sure that when that child arrived, there was, there was, a, there was an ease of entrance, right? See, in the same way, God knew. How many of you realize God is all-knowing? Like, we get this, right? Like, he knows everything. I'd like to point out, this is also the reason why he's the perfect judge. There's a reason why I can't judge, but he gets to. And it's because he knows everything. Not just the stuff, not just the stuff that gets out really public. God knows everything. He knows the full inner workings of every person. Everything you've ever thought or did and hoped that nobody else found out, God knows these things. God knows the motivations of every heart, even though I don't. It's why he's the perfect judge. It's why I leave that to him, because that's his job. What he chooses, he keeps. I also want you to be reminded. You know, sometimes when we think of the idea of God choosing certain people, we think, man, it feels unfair. Can I tell somebody in the room that Jesus reached out to everyone regardless of his knowledge about them? The issue is, everyone has the same choice. See, John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
which means we all have the same choice to make. God simply knows who's going to choose. Does that make sense? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? It's almost, it almost feels like there's a certain level of futility to where God, Jesus reached out to so many people knowing that so many of them would say no to him. And yet, he didn't choose between one or the other, like, I'm going to really reach out so much harder to Lindsay than I do to some other guy. No, he gave us an equal choice. That's the difference, honestly, between equality and equity. If you've seen those words bandied about, let me tell you the difference between the two. Equality gives everyone the same opportunity. Equity gives everyone the same outcome. The Bible is about equality, not equity. Everybody has a choice to make. God simply knows who's going to choose them and who doesn't. God doesn't demean or force the will of a person, but he's all-knowing. And the fact that God can know everything and not be responsible for everything is his divine privilege. Listen, some of us understand exactly, like if I was to explain this from a parental perspective, there are certain times where I know what my, my kids are doing, but it's not necessarily my fault they're doing it. Now, as a, as, a, as a father of a five-year-old, as a father of a five-year-old, if my child runs out in the street, I have a much greater responsibility as if, as a father of a 30-year-old, I have a, you know, greater responsibility. You guys run out in the street at 30 years old, I'm going to be like, what are you doing? I literally taught you better than this. <laughs> at some point in time, let me put it to you this way. At some point in time, we have to be able to admit that God knows everything and he doesn't make you do anything. He doesn't demean your free will. He just simply knows what you're going to do. So God, in the same way, knowing who would choose him, began to weave a redemption, purpose, and inheritance for those that he knew would say yes to him. This is maybe how I would describe this. And, and I'm, I'm going to be really honest with you guys. I'm going to, sometimes I preach, how many of you know that um, I, I, I tend to be fairly confident in my preaching? Okay. I'm, I preach confidently because that's who God made me to be. But I got to be honest with you. In, in, in certain ways, I hold this kind of theology very lightly. Because the truth is, I don't know. And nor can I know. In fact, here's, we're going to do an exercise in all the things you don't know. I want you to close your eyes all over this room. I want you to imagine what your life is going to be like 30 years from now. Some of you are like, well, I'm going to be with Jesus. <laughs> okay? <laughs> all right. But I want you to think about 30 years from now, what you're going to be doing. Okay, now I want you to think about 50 years from now. How about 100 years from now? How about 10,000 years from now? See, the thing is, is once I got past the realm of 100, most of us are like, I don't know. Why is that? Because you're finite. You have a beginning and you have an ending. See, let me put it to you a different way. We are made in the image of God, but we are not necessarily like God. God is wholly different. His divine attributes we don't possess. We don't have eternal life. We don't have eternal existence. Maybe it would be a better way to put that. I had a definitive beginning. God had no beginning. Things are so different between us that I can't fathom the things that are normal for him. And that's why sometimes issues like this 
are so difficult for people because what we want is we want logically put together answers that put everything into their, into their place so that I can fully understand everything. Friend, you don't even fully understand your wife. What makes you think that you're going to fully understand how God works? This is why sometimes we have to be really careful before we, we, we get so entrenched in a certain belief style or theo- theological structure that we can't be moved at all. Because the truth is, some of the most basic things about our faith, we don't, under, we don't really fully understand because everything that we do is not done in knowledge, it's done in faith. Number two, redeemed completely. Redeemed completely. This is uh, going back to Ephesians 1, 7 to 10. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. Listen to this next part. And and I I want you to feel the weight of this just for a moment. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Friend, I got to tell you that what you have is so much greater than forgiveness. You have been, you have been given access into the mystery of the will of God. Can I tell you how profound that is? That God would let you in on His plan. He didn't just let me in so that I could preach to you guys. He let you in so that you could understand the mystery of His will. You are not what you've done or what you're doing or what's been done to you. You are not what you've done, what you are doing, or what's been done to you. You are covered by the blood of Jesus. You're covered. Continuing to shame yourself for your past doesn't actually produce righteousness if you haven't noticed. You have been redeemed completely and fully. You cannot outsin the blood of Jesus. You cannot outsin the blood of Jesus. Now, I, I want to take a moment and say, if you're sinning, you should probably stop. Okay. When I say you can't outsin the blood, what I mean, what I mean is that there are some there are some people that are still wrapped up in some things that you are continually believing a lie about yourself, which is that Jesus can't forgive this. Friend, there's nothing he cannot forgive. There is nothing he cannot redeem. There is nothing he cannot restore. There is nothing that he cannot deliver you from. Nothing. Nothing. I want you to to understand this. It's not because sin isn't bad. It's because it has no power over his sacrifice. It has no power. It has no authority. The worth of Jesus' sacrifice is eternal. 
Listen to this. This is Hebrews 10, 16, and 17. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I will put my law on their hearts and write them over their minds, and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Friend, we've got a whole different covenant. Jesus literally paid it all. In fact, it's our understanding of the worth of Christ's work that tends to produce a practical life of righteousness. See, if you could do everything yourself, you could always start over. You know what I'm talking about? Like, if you could do everything in your own power, you could always just make a couple of mistakes and start over. No big deal. Because I've done it before, I could do it again. The issue is the debt that you had before the Lord was so great that there's nothing that you could have done ever that would have ever made up for that debt, ever. And so Jesus did it for you and removed the debt. But see, it's interesting, when, when somebody does something for you that's so profound, it's so, it's so big, you tend to treat that thing differently, don't you? When your grandfather gives you your first car, you treat it differently. Because it's not just something you did, it was something that was done for you. See, when I remember... You know, I've heard it said this way. The only participation in your salvation that you have is the sin that you committed that made, it, made, the, made the sacrifice of Jesus necessary. That's my participation in my salvation. But it's when I remember the sacrifice of Jesus and I remind myself that His sacrifice determined my worth. I've said it maybe a different way before. He called you worth it before he made you worthy. You were worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus, not because you'd done anything, but because he made you and he said you're worthy. And when I'm reminded, not just of how unbelievable his sacrifice was, but I'm reminded that when he sacrificed himself on my behalf, he was also speaking that identity over me and he was saying, you were worth this. And then I'm reminded, I don't take lowball offers. I know what I'm worth. Your, I can't believe I just did that, I'm still such a sinner, doesn't help you not sin. Reminding yourself of the sacrifice of Jesus and that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus is what helps you not sin. Number three, um, Bringing this in for a landing. Rich. You're rich. Now, some of you are like, you see my bank account? That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> Listen. First, or, uh, Ephesians 1, 11 to 14 says this. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to His glory. In Him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption, the possession, to the praise of His glory. Now, again, I don't mean that you are rich in money, okay? Money, I, I, gotta, I gotta be honest with you. In the, new, in the new covenant, money is not an indicator of God's blessing or his cursing. Most of the time, possessions, generally speaking, are an indicator of stewardship. If you're good with your money, you'll probably get more. 
I mean, we, we, don't, we don't teach the prosperity gospel here where we say that if you do A, B, C, and D, God's going to make you rich. What we teach is stewardship, which is I do the right things with what God gives me. When you do the right things, the right things tend to grow your finances. It just is what it is. But when I say rich, what I mean is that so often, so often we forget what we have. Friend, I got to tell you, and I feel like sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm not banging my head against the wall, but I feel like sometimes I'm, I'm continually reminding us that what the most important thing that we get is not healing. It's not deliverance. It's not, it's, it's Jesus himself. Jesus is your reward. Jesus is your reward. You are rich in Christ because you have Christ. Listen, in Genesis chapter 15, when, when God comes to Abram and, and he, 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 he essentially recovenants with Abraham, right? So he changed his name from Abram to Abraham. And then he says, I'm your shield, your very great reward. Abram does the exact same thing that most of us do. He goes on and he says, what good are your promises? I haven't received a son yet. My servant is still my heir. You told me I was going to be the father of many nations. He put the promise ahead of the promiser. He got so used to the fact that he was chosen that he forgot that he was chosen. The most important thing about you is that you have been chosen. The most important thing about you is Jesus. The best thing that you could ever get is Jesus. It's not the promises that he's given you. It's not the prophetic words. It's not what you think of the, the purpose or the destiny or whatever you think it is. The most important thing that you have is the knowledge that you have been chosen by God. You've been chosen for relationship with him. You've been chosen. What he chooses, he keeps. We get him, and it's more than enough. What's crazy is that it gets significantly better. See, when I put a down payment on something, I mean, you know, we, 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 go, to, we go to buy a car, we put down 20%. We go to buy a house, we put down 20 or 25%. What we have in him right now is not even close to what we'll have when we see him face to face is a down payment Whew. you know I think some of us because we're finite some of us can tend to be afraid of what's next we can tend to have this sometimes perspective of eternity that actually doesn't make it seem like a joyful place because we can't really we can't connect with it in our minds we're not sure what it looks like but friend I gotta tell you if you liked being in Christ here, you're going to love being in Christ there. Because this is just a down payment. This isn't even the whole dog and pony show. This is just, you're getting a taste. But when you see him face to face, you'll get the whole thing. Here's where I'm I'm, I'm, I'm closing right now. You are not your mistakes. 
You are not your successes. You are not the content of your bank account. You are not your Google search history. You are not how many followers you have on Instagram. You are not how many likes you get. You are not who other people say you are. You are not the sum total of your sins. Can I tell you who you are in Christ? You are adopted. You are blood-bought. You are empowered. You are deeply loved. You are honored. You are set free. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are wealthy beyond all imagination. You are brought in, not left out. You are restored, and you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. And here's the thing. That's just the beginning. It's just a down payment. That's the least part of what you get in Christ. If you think it's good now, it's going to get a lot better. Come on, can we pray this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the blessings that we have in Christ. I thank you that every good thing about us is in Christ, is by Christ, and it's for Christ. I thank you for the richness of the inheritance that you have stored up for your people. I thank you that we are chosen. I thank you that we are blood-bought. I thank you that we are redeemed. We are set free. We are honored. We are elevated. Lord, that you have made us the head and not the tail. God, I thank you that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. I thank you. You didn't have to. We didn't earn it. But you you decided that it would be so. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, I'm just going gonna, gonna, I'm gonna to ask one person a question this morning. Do you know Jesus? Friend, I got to tell you, the chosen are the ones who choose. And I'm going to give you an opportunity this morning to choose Jesus. Knowing that he's already knocking on your heart. He's already saying, come to me. Come to me. You know, I can tell you, friend, if, if that's you and you don't know Jesus in this room or, or, or maybe you've walked away from the Lord and you're just, you just believe God can't forgive you again. I want to tell you something. God can forgive anything. There is no place that you have walked that God cannot redeem your life from. I can tell you that every person in this room Every person in this room that said yes to Jesus and has stayed faithful with him has had an encounter with him in which he rescued us out of our darkest moments and he'll do it for you today. If that's you this morning, you want to say yes to Jesus, I'd like you to lift your hand. I want to pray for you. Is there anybody in the house that today's your day saying, I want to know him. I want to come in. I want to come in. Anybody this morning? Jesus, we thank you today. Lord, we thank you that you are so good to us. We are grateful to be your church. We're grateful to be in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Can we give the Lord a praise this morning?